If you have a Bible, take it out. Over the next three months, you have my permission and my blessing to use the table of contents if you need to use that. We're going to be talking about the minor prophets, and we're just going to go in the biblical order. So this morning, you need to find the book of Hosea. Again, this will be a a judgment-free zone if you need to use the table of contents. Feel free to do that. There are some notes in the bulletin. You'll have an idea, a roadmap of what we're talking about and what we're going to discuss. We're going to spend three months looking at the minor prophets. It's an unfortunate thing that they have been labeled minor. When I think minor prophets, my mind goes to minor league baseball. And I think, well, it's almost real baseball, but it's not really real baseball. And you may be tempted to think the same thing when you think about the minor prophets. You may be tempted to think, oh, not quite as important. Uh, They weren't quite up to the big leagues. They were just the guys trying to work their way up. The name minor prophets simply comes from the fact that the books that they wrote were short. They weren't as long as Isaiah or Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And I'll just tell you, I'm in my uh, my personal Bible reading, reading through the scriptures, I'm in the major prophets right now, and they are majorly long. It takes a long time to get through Isaiah, and then you think, I'm never going to get through Jeremiah, and then Ezekiel is long too. These guys are a little bit shorter, and you know, sometimes shorter is better, right? You're thinking a short sermon would be great today. That would be so much better. I wasn't thinking about a sermon. I was thinking about political speeches. Think about the political speeches you have heard over the last 10 years or so. Our current president and our last president, I don't talk about politics very much. I'm just going to put my toe in the water here, okay? Current president and last president, very different. Is that fair? Very different. They have at least one thing in common. They both love the sound of their own voice. And both of them can get up and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. Compare that with good old Abraham Lincoln, the Gettysburg Address of 1863. It was only 272 words. A political speech that began and ended in the span of two minutes. I'd vote for somebody that could do that. How about you? Two minutes, say what you need to say, you got my vote. Now, Lincoln could talk, right? You may go back and you say, yeah, but what about the the Lincoln-Douglas debates? They had about seven of them, and uh, these guys debated, and I think the format of the debate was the first guy would get up and talk for about an hour and a half, and then the next guy would get to get up, and he'd talk for about an hour and a half, and then the other guy would get about a 30-minute rebuttal and back and forth. So those guys could talk. They could be long-winded when they needed to be, but they also understood sometimes you just need to say what you have to say, and then be quiet. And that's sort of what the minor prophets do. They pack a big, big punch, right? The message that they proclaimed and the message that is still valid for our lives is not minor in significance. It's just a little bit more compact, and it's a little more direct and a little bit more to the punch. In Jewish tradition, they took all 12 of the minor prophets and they lumped them together in one book. They referred to that book as a a number of different things, but sometimes they called it the Book of the Twelve. And they combined these twelve smaller, shorter prophets together because they didn't want any of them to get lost. Isaiah was so big, you weren't going to lose the Isaiah scroll. You weren't going to lose the Jeremiah scroll. But you might lose the Nahum scroll, 
And they didn't want that to happen, so they combined them all into one scroll, and they called it the Book of the Twelve. And this morning we're going to jump in. We're going to spend one week on each of the minor prophets, which means this morning we're talking about Hosea. Here's a few things you need to know about the book, and then we'll talk more about the man. Okay? Hosea, this book, is set before the northern kingdom, before the fall of the northern kingdom, in the 8th century B.C. And when I throw that up there, for a lot of you, you think that means absolutely nothing to me. That's a great piece of you know, information. Maybe that will help me on Jeopardy someday, but that really doesn't have any significance to me. It doesn't to me unless I can see it visually. So let me just show you a visual timeline. This timeline would be the history of ancient Israel, the nation. Okay? So the beginning of this timeline, they've come out of Egypt. Moses has led them out. They've wandered in the wilderness. Moses died. Joshua led them into the promised land. They fought for the promised land. They went all the way through the period of Judges. And we come all the way up to what Bible scholars call the unified kingdom. This is the nation of Israel under Saul, then David, then Solomon. Everyone together under one sort of governmental head. But then there's almost a civil war, and the civil war is, is avoided simply by dividing the nation into two parts. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. That's what Bible scholars call the divided kingdom. So this once united kingdom gets split in half. Israel is the northern kingdom. Judah is the southern kingdom. Then we would come, or fast forwarding quite a ways down the road, to what Bible scholars call the Assyrian exile. The nation of Assyria in 722 marched on the northern kingdom of Israel, conquered Samaria, and took the people in the northern kingdom into exile in Assyria. That happened in 722. Just a few years later, the Babylonians came. The northern kingdom was already gone, so the Babylonians marched against the southern kingdom of Judah, conquered Jerusalem, and hauled them into exile. You're going to get used to seeing this chart. All the minor prophets fit on this timeline, and we would squeeze Hosea in right in the middle. The kingdom has already been divided. There's been a number of wicked kings in the north and a a mixed bag of kings down in the south. And Hosea comes along right when the northern kingdom is about to be conquered and taken in to exile. So right before the fall of the northern kingdom. Hosea's ministry, you need to understand this, focused on Israel. Not the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem, but Israel in the north. And sometimes he refers to that nation as Samaria, and sometimes he refers to it as a frame. Now you may say, why couldn't he just pick a term? Why all these different terms for the same thing? It'd be like if you went home and you turn on the news, Sunday afternoon, uh, afternoon political news, and they said, the talking head said, there's news from Russia. Or they could say, there's news from Moscow. Or they could say, there's news from the Kremlin. You would understand that they're really talking about the same thing in each of those phrases. And the same thing is true in Hosea. Sometimes he talks about Israel, the nation. Sometimes he talks about Samaria, the capital. And sometimes he talks about Ephraim, who was the largest tribe in the northern kingdom. But they all refer to the same thing. Here's another thing you need to know. Hosea lived during a period of economic prosperity under the reign of Jeroboam II. So if you just look at Hosea 1.1, this is what we read. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, 
in the days of, in the first four kings you read about, are all Judean kings, kings in the south. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. This is the second King Jeroboam they've had in Israel. He was every bit as rotten as the first one. They called him Jeroboam the second at times. What you need to know is that he reigned for 42 years. Right? Spiritually, the northern kingdom was in the toilet. It was terrible. Economically, things were good. People had money in their bank account. Unemployment rate was low. The economy was humming along. Trade was good with foreign partners. Politically, everything was pretty stable. One king ruling for 42 years. Life was pretty decent on a national level, on an economic level, on a political level. But on a spiritual level, it was a different story. And into all of that outward prosperity, in walks a prophet named Hosea. If I had to summarize the book of Hosea in one statement, this would be it. Hosea is a book about adultery and idolatry. It's a book about adultery and a book about idolatry. And there's a very close connection between the two in the book of Hosea. We're going to try to unpack that this morning. I'm going to try to help you make sense of it. Hosea is a minor prophet. It does have 14 chapters, which means, lucky you, shorter is better. We're not going to read it all. We are going to flip through and look at different passages. So you need a a Bible, whether that's a, a copy of the Bible you've got or you've got it on your phone. Have it handy because we're going to read several different texts this morning. Let me try to answer a couple of questions about the book of Hosea. We'll start with just basic facts about the man and then we'll build up to how we apply this book to our lives. Number one, what do we know about Hosea? This will be quick. His name means the Lord saves. It means Yahweh saves. That's why I have Lord in all capital letters. Yahweh saves. It's a a variation of the Hebrew name Hosea, right? Or Joshua. In the New Testament, this name is sometimes translated Jesus All these names, it'd sort of be like calling somebody Sam or Samuel or Sammy. They're all part of the same word group, and all these names mean Yahweh saves. Secondly, he was a contemporary of Isaiah, Amos, and Micah. So there was at least one major prophet preaching at the same time, and there were two other minor prophets preaching at the same time as Hosea. Thirdly, we'll talk about this. His family life was a reflection of his message. The things that were happening in Hosea's marriage helped to display to everyone that was watching and listening the truth that God wanted to communicate to his people. Not only his marriage, but his relationship with his children and the names that he gave his children. His family life was a picture of the message that he was preaching, which begs the question, well, what did he preach? What was he all about? What did he have to say? We'll summarize it with four thoughts. What was Hosea's message to Israel? Number one, Israel was guilty of spiritual adultery. Or you could say Israel was guilty of idolatry. But as it's described in Hosea, it's usually said in terms of adultery. And God is saying to his people, you have been unfaithful to me like a spouse might be unfaithful to his husband or to his wife. 
You're unfaithful as a people. In the book of Hosea, there are six different words used for adultery. Six different Hebrew words. It's like Hosea is pulling every term out of the dictionary he can to help the people understand. Your idolatry and your unfaithfulness to the Lord is like a a spouse breaking covenant with their husband or with their wife. They were guilty of spiritual adultery. Look at Hosea chapter 4. We won't read all of the the references we could could look at. I'll just warn you, some of them we're not going to read because they're extremely graphic. But look what Hosea says in Hosea 4, verse 12. This is the word of the Lord if you back up to verse 1. And God says to his people through Hosea, Hosea 4, 12, My people inquire of a piece of wood. That's their idol, right? They're not coming to the Lord. They're not coming to Yahweh. But they're going to, they're inquiring of, they're praying to, they're worshiping a piece of wood. And their walking staff gives them oracles. These people were even carving idols into the staff that they carried around so that their little idol could be carried along with them everywhere that they went. They're inquiring of pieces of wood. Their walking staff is giving them oracles for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. You say, that's strong language. That's the kind of thing that we don't hear a lot today. I got news for you. They didn't hear it a lot in Hosea's day either. There weren't many prophets standing up talking like this. It wasn't popular. It wasn't a way to draw a crowd. It wasn't culturally relevant or whatever you want to say. It wasn't a message that tickled people's ears. But Hosea stood before the people and he said to them over and over and over again throughout the book, you are guilty. In turning to these idols, you are guilty of spiritual adultery. Secondly, Hosea told the people that their idolatry had resulted in many other sins. Right? Their problem was not just that they were talking to their staff as an idol or that they were inquiring of pieces of wood. Their problem was that their idolatry had led to untold numbers of other sins. So look at Hosea chapter 4, <clears throat> verse 1 and 2. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. Well, what is there? Swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Their idolatry didn't just stay where it was, but it spread to every area of their lives. Look at Hosea chapter 7, verse 10. This is, again, God speaking through Hosea, and he says, The pride of Israel testifies to his face. You're a proud people. You're an arrogant people. They do not return to the Lord their God nor seek him for all of this. Why? Because they're proud. They think they can chart their own spiritual course. They think they know which gods they should worship better than than the Lord does, better than Yahweh does. They're prideful people. Look at chapter 10, verse 13. Not only was their relationship with God vertically broken, 
but horizontally they were sinning against each other. Hosea 10.13, you have plowed iniquity and reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you trusted in your own way and the multitude of your warriors. That idea of injustice in the prophets always talks about how you treat other people. Are you doing right by them? Are you being honest with them? Are you square in your business dealings? Are you taking care of the poor? Are you looking out for the vulnerable? Or are you just looking out for yourself? And Hosea says, you don't care about anybody else. You don't care about the vulnerable, the widows, the orphans, the, the sojourners, the aliens. You don't care about any of these people. All you care about is yourself. Your relationship with God is broken and your relationship with each other is marked by injustice. Listen, what Hosea is saying to us is something we'll see throughout the prophets. When you go wrong on the first two commands to only worship God and to not have any idols. When you go wrong on those two, everything else goes haywire. And you may think, no, 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 no. I'm going to be a good person. I'm just going to do what I want when it comes to worship. And the Bible says that's just not the way it works. When you go wrong vertically in who you're worshiping and how you're worshiping, it's always going to spill out into your life. You miss the first two commandments, the other eight are sure to fall. So you've got these people. They're guilty of spiritual adultery. They're guilty of all these other sins. Number three, Israel was going to be punished by God. Israel was going to be punished by God. I just want you to remember that in Hosea's day, everyone looked around. They looked at their bank account. They looked at their home. They had money. They were prospering. The nation was stable. There wasn't a, a, a continual rotation of kings being assassinated like there were at different periods of Israel's history. It was just everything was pretty good. And Hosea walks into that and he says, God's going to punish you. He's not just going to overlook your spiritual adultery and your sin towards each other. He's not just going to sweep that under the rug. There's going to be a punishment. And the first place you see it is when Hosea names his kids. And I just want, I want you to think for a minute about naming children. For some of you, it's been a long time since you had to name a kiddo. Some of you say, I've never had to name a kiddo. I've, I've never had to do that. And so I'm just going to remind some of you what it's like. And some of you who haven't had to do it yet, you should take notes on this. I didn't put it on your outline, but this is information you're going to need to know. Okay? When it comes time to name a child... Here's how it works. And I've had four kids. They're all pretty young. I remember this. I'm an expert. Okay? Here you go. You make a list and your wife makes a list. You come up with all the names you like. Okay? And you know at some point we're going to have to conference on these names. We're going to come together. And taking those two lists and whittling it down to one name is kind of like jury selection. Okay? You come in, and you've got your list, and she's got her list, and you both get strikes, like scratches. Like you say, no, I sat by a smelly kid in third grade, and that was his name. We're not going with that name. Scratch. You, just, you get a veto. You get a certain number of vetoes. You can scratch them off. Now, you know that's going to happen. And what you don't want to happen is for you to walk in with your list and your wife or your husband just scratches your favorite name right off the bat. You don't want that to happen. So you know, he or she's going to scratch a couple. i got to put some fake ones on the list. 
I got to go with some stuff that he or she is never going to go for. Not in a million years. And you put it on the list and you say, here's my list. These are my favorite names. And then your spouse looks at that and your spouse says, no. No, we're scratching this one and this one and this one. And then you just breathe a sigh of relief and you say, all the good ones are still there. All the ones I wanted still made it into the next round of negotiations. And some of you are going to say, well, what kind of names would you put? What kind of fake names would you put on the list? Hosea has three that you might want to consider. (laughs) Just file it away. File it away. And if you put these on the list and your spouse says, oh, that's ridiculous, you say, hey, I'm just trying to be biblical. That's a Bible name. Here's the names. Are you ready? Jezreel. Lo Ruhamah and Lo Ami. You just put those on your list. And your spouse says, What in the world does that mean? What kind of name is that? And you say, Well, Jezreel means God will scatter. And Lo Ruhamah means no compassion. And Lo Ami means not my people. And your spouse says, Those are my three scratches right there. I'm not going with any of those. And the not-so-funny thing is that when Hosea started having kids, the Lord spoke to him and he said, this is what I want you to name your kiddos. Child number one, Jezreel. God's going to scatter his people. Think, Think about what that sounded like to an Israelite. God had come to Egypt to rescue them, to bring them out. He brought them into the promised land. He established them. He gave them cities they didn't build, vineyards they didn't plant. He gave them a home. He lived there with them in the tabernacle and then in the temple. And now God says, I'm going to scatter you. you got to leave. Sort of reminds you of Adam and Eve in the garden, right? When they sin against God and God says, you got to go. It's the exact same idea. God had brought them into the promised land. They were unfaithful to the covenant. And now God says, I'm going to scatter you. Lo Ruhamah. God says, I will not have compassion. I've been patient with you. I've sent prophet after prophet after prophet. I've given you a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance and a 50th chance. We've been doing this for hundreds of years. My patience is spent and you will not be shown compassion. Lo, me, think about what this sounded like to these ancient Jews. You are no longer my people. I rescued you and redeemed you to be with me. But you've been unfaithful to the covenant and you've sinned against your neighbor and you've done it long enough and I'm going to scatter you among the nations. You're leaving the promised land. I will not have compassion on you and no longer will I call you my people. I just tell you, that was not a popular message when Hosea preached it. I know sometimes we have in our minds, back in the good old days, fire and brimstone preaching was popular. Can I just be honest with you? It's never been popular. It never will be popular. It wasn't popular 50 years ago. It wasn't popular when Hosea preached it. And he walked into this nation where everything was good on the outside. Remember, his life is a picture of his message. And he says, God's going to bring judgment on you. He's going to scatter you without compassion, and you will no longer be his people. 
that could have been the end of his message. He could have just stopped and put a period at the end of it. Instead, he kept going, and he had one more thing to say. Israel would eventually be restored by God. After this scattering, after this judgment, after this punishment, after cutting off his people from having access to him, Hosea says, God's going to restore you. He's going to be gracious to you. The first hint you get of it is in chapter 2. And there's just a a strange little part in chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. God says, I'm going to allure her. I'm going to bring her back. I'm going to speak tenderly to her. I'll give her vineyards and I will make, verse 15, I will make the valley of Acre a door of hope. The valley of Acre. If you've read your Bible, you read verse 15 in Hosea 2 and you say, that sounds familiar. Where do I know that from? You know it from the book of Joshua. When Joshua leads the people into the promised land and they win the first victory, the first battle in the promised land at Jericho, and it's a glorious victory. God fights for his people. And in response, Achan steals from the Lord. And judgment comes on the nation. They lose the very next battle that they should have easily won. And God's instruction to the people is, you need to take Achan, you need to take his family who was in on this theft. They stole from me after I fought for you. He stole from me. You take him to the Valley of Acre and you stone him. That's where you've heard of the Valley of Acre. It's where they killed Achan for stealing against the Lord. And do you see the reversal? For hundreds of years, the people have thought about the Valley of Acre as a place of judgment. It's a place of death. And God says, listen, I'm about to bring judgment on you, but then I'm going to restore you. I'm going to take the Valley of Acre, a place of judgment and punishment, and I'm going to turn it into a door of hope. I'm going to restore you to where you were before. Look at the promise in Hosea 14. Very end of the book. Hosea 14 verse 4 says this. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root Like the trees of Lebanon, his shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive, his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They will blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. God says, I'm going to restore you. And it happened. The Assyrians came and they took these people as a measure of God's judgment and punishment, took them into exile. They were scattered, and it was horrific. And when the time was right, God brought them back, and he reestablished them in the land. There was just one problem. When he brought them back, the same thing started happening all over again. It was the same song, different verse. God's people chasing after other gods. God's people practicing injustice towards their neighbor, and in the end, nothing really changed. Which leads us to the question, what do we do with this? This this ancient man, Hosea, preached this ancient message of judgment and eventual restoration for their sin and adultery and idolatry. 
What in the world do we do with this book? And I want to give you two suggestions as we end. First suggestion is this. Sometimes God uses the circumstances of your life to amplify the message that you preach. That's the point of Hosea 1, 2, and 3. Sometimes God uses the circumstance of your life, the situation that you find yourself in, to amplify what you believe about him and what you want other people to know about him. And that was true for Hosea. Look in your Bible at Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. God told the prophets to do strange things. He told Jeremiah not to get married. He said, Jeremiah, you're going into exile. Don't get married. You must remain a bachelor. And uh, he told Ezekiel, your wife is going to die, and when she dies, I want you to go to the funeral, and I don't want you to cry. And it's going to be a picture of judgment on these people that you're not grieving for the loss of your wife. And even better, God told the prophet Isaiah, I want you to preach naked for three years. And he did it. That would be a sight to see. And God comes to Hosea and he has something interesting that he wants Hosea to do. Hosea 1-2 says this, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take your wife, go take to yourself, excuse me, a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. There's different opinions about this verse. The majority of scholars think that God told him to go marry a prostitute. A minority of scholars says, no, he just he sent him to marry a woman, and he knew in advance that that woman was going to be unfaithful to him, and he had to marry her anyways. You can sort of split the Hebrew grammar either way you want to read it, but this is what God says. I want you to get married, and I want you to know up front it's going to go terribly bad. It's going to be really, really bad. They got hitched. He married a woman named Gomer. Verse 3, he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. He took her, she conceived, and she bore him a son. And they named this son Jezreel. God is going to scatter. When you keep reading, she gets pregnant two more times. And the wording is different on the next two. And I agree with the scholars who say the wording is different intentionally to suggest that the next two kids weren't even Hosea's. The text does not say again that she bore him a next child or a third child. It just says she conceived and she had a child. And Hosea takes care of those kids even though they're not his own. He's faithful to his wife when she's unfaithful to him. And they name those kids no compassion They named that third kid, you are no longer my people. And then what's bad gets worse and Gomer just leaves. She just takes off. There was an excitement with other men, an excitement with somebody else. Maybe she was tired of being married to a prophet, but she left. And those men, I'm sure, promised her the moon and said, I'll do this, it's going to be great, it's going to be exciting, Come come with me. And like it always does, none of it happened. It was a train wreck. And if you keep reading in Hosea 1 and 2 and 3, you realize that Hosea was witness to the whole train wreck. He saw it all happen right in front of his eyes. They didn't run away to some far distant town where they could could be unfaithful. 
in secret. They just did it right in front of Hosea, and he saw the whole thing happen. He saw that his wife was not being provided for. The text tells us that Hosea at at least once took resources to his wife, giving them to her boyfriend so that he could then take credit for those resources and giving them to Gomer. She didn't even know that her own husband was taking care of her all this time. She was chasing something else. And what's bad that went to worse then hit rock bottom and Gomer finds herself in the slave market. You say, well, where was the boyfriend? Where was the the second husband? Where were the guys that were going to take care of her? They're long gone. And she finds herself in the slave market being sold. Standing up in public, completely uncovered. Into the market walks Hosea. In front of everyone in the community who knew him, who knew what had happened, who probably snickered about it and laughed about it and cracked jokes about it, they start to auction Gomer off and Hosea starts bidding. And the text tells us that in the end, he buys his own wife for 15 shekels of silver and about nine bushels of barley. And in all of that, Hosea is preaching. He's preaching with his mouth. That's a large part of the book. But God is also using the circumstances of his life to amplify his message. I'm not suggesting that God will take the way that you live and you don't ever have to tell anybody else what you believe about Jesus Christ. I'm saying that God will take the circumstances of your life He will not put you in difficult situations to crush you or destroy you, but he'll put you in those situations so that the message you believe and the message you share with others is amplified. It's magnified. Listen, all of the prophets describe Israel as an unfaithful spouse. All of them say that. It's not just Hosea. He didn't have a corner on that language. They all say it. But when Hosea talked about it, people listened. They knew what he had been through. When he talked about spiritual adultery, it came from a place in his heart that was far different than someone who had never experienced that on a personal level. And when Hosea talked about God's grace and his forgiveness, you can imagine he spoke about it with a joy that none of the other prophets could ever imagine. God used the circumstance of his life to amplify the message that he preached. He will do the exact same thing in your life. Now, I hope that he doesn't give you the instructions he gave to Isaiah, and I hope that he probably is not going to give you the instructions he gave to Ezekiel or Jeremiah or even Hosea here. But he is going to put you in situations and circumstances where you say, God, it feels like you're crushing me. It feels like you're trying to destroy me. And he's not doing that at all. He's given you an opportunity to pick up a spiritual megaphone and he's amplifying the message that you're preaching. Look, when I stand on this stage, healthy, I don't don't feel poorly, my bank account is full, everything is great in my family, and I stand up and I say to you, God is good and God is faithful. It's true. But when the doctor tells you that you have cancer and you say to your friends and your family, God is good and God is faithful, they're listening to you in a way they'll never listen to me. When you lose a loved one, someone that you care about very much, and you say to the people around you, God is good and he is faithful in the midst of this, 
People will listen to you in a way they will never listen to a Sunday morning sermon. It doesn't mean that what we say on Sunday morning isn't true. It just means that sometimes God uses the circumstance of your life, the situation that you're in in life, to amplify the message that you believe and the message you share with other people. So that's one takeaway from the book of Hosea. Here's the second. Jesus is the only way sinners can be restored to a right relationship with God. If you need salvation, Jesus is the only way that you can be saved. And i like to draw your attention to one little promise at the beginning of Hosea. One little verse. And you've got to read it carefully. You could read over it so quickly that you just don't even pay attention. Do you remember when I told you earlier that Hosea's ministry was focused on Israel, the northern kingdom, Samaria, Ephraim. Not Judah in the south, Israel in the north. Look what he says in Hosea 1.7. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah. Not on Israel. They're going to be judged and they're going to be punished. I'm going to have mercy on Judah. And I will save them. I will save Judah by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or horsemen. I'm not going to save them by anything that they would be able to take credit for. But I'm going to save them by the Lord their God. You say, what is that promise about? Well, it's about a couple of different things. Here's the first thing it's about. Just a few years after Hosea preached, the armies of Assyria came and they marched against the northern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel folded like a cheap tent. Samaria was conquered and overrun. The people were were sent into exile. And the king of Assyria and the general of his army got a really big head. And they said, while we're all the way out here, why don't we just take Judah too? I mean, we already took the northern kingdom. Why don't we just finish them off and take the southern kingdom? So this massive army of Assyrians, the Ninevites, the cruelest people in the ancient world, they march against Judah after they've just conquered Israel. And they are boasting and they're making fun of Yahweh and they're sending letters and proclaiming things outside the gates of Jerusalem, blaspheming the name of the Lord. They are so boastful and so arrogant. And the Bible says that on the night before they fought... The angel of the Lord went out into the camp of the Assyrians and slaughtered 185,000 of them as they slept. No one in Judah raised a bow or a sword or got on their horse. They were saved by the Lord. He did it. And then he said, you go out and see what I've done for you. You didn't do this for yourself. I did it for you. Now, most prophecies in the Bible work like this. When you read them in the Old Testament, they have a fulfillment that's up close, but they also have a fulfillment that's down the road. You think about down the road. God brings these people back. He punishes them. He sends them, scatters them among the nations. He brings them back eventually. He settles them in the land, and their hearts are every bit as wicked as they were before. I mean, they're rotten to the core. Nothing has changed. These people still needed to be saved. 
they went from being subjected to the, by the Assyrians, then it was the Babylonians, then it was the Persians, then it was the Greeks, then it was the Romans. It was just one nation after another. These people needed to be delivered. They were oppressed. They were in bondage, not just to nations, but to their own sins. What did God send? He didn't send an army. He didn't send a warrior. He didn't send a general. He didn't send somebody riding on a horse to conquer the Romans and free his people. He sent a baby. He sent someone to be the son of a carpenter. He sent somebody who lived on this earth without a penny to his name. Somebody who was executed as a common criminal at the end of his life, and he was so poor they put him in somebody else's tomb. And through Jesus, God saves his people. Not by bow, not by horse, not by sword, not by army, not by fighting, but through dying. You and I don't get to take any credit for it any more than the Judeans got to take credit for the 185,000 dead Assyrians sitting outside their city in their tents. We take no credit for it. We just stand back and we say, all of my hope is in Jesus. God has done for me what I don't deserve because I'm every bit as adulterous and idolatrous as the people that Hosea preached to. I I deserve to be left to myself in the slave market, given to the highest bidder. But instead, he came and he sent Jesus to purchase me, to buy me. I'm doubly his, just like Gomer was doubly Hosea's. She was his by marriage and by purchase. And the God of the universe says to you, you're doubly mine. I made you and then I bought you. And I'm going to restore you. I'm not going to kick you out of my presence, but I'm going to bring you into my presence. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. You can look it up later on your own. He says, look, this was not what the Jews were expecting. And it was certainly not anything the Gentiles were interested in. I mean, people thought this was silliness, ridiculous, embarrassing even. But... To those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Not horses, not soldiers, not armies, not governments, not politics. Not anything that we can do, but what God has done for us. That's Hosea. I want you to bow and we're going to pray.